We're in Matthew chapter 12 tonight, verses 33 through 37, and then we're going to try to get a little bit further as well beyond that, but we won't make it all the way because we're going to try to keep us with where we were, where we were on, ended up on Tuesday night, last night. So with the Tuesday night group, we only get so far, that's as far as we're going to get tonight, Lord willing, all right, to try to keep the two studies together. We're in Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Jesus is continuing his teaching, and he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, if you remember where we ended up last week, last week we ended up dealing with a couple of those passages in the scripture that people have tried to use over the years to say you possibly could lose your salvation. And we showed you how those passages actually show that you're eternally secure and whether or not you've responded to the, the Holy Spirit appropriately will be determined by how you, you act after the Holy Spirit reveals himself to you. And so real quickly, go back to Hebrews chapter six. And I want to kind of show you how where we ended up last week kind of helps us grasp what Jesus is saying here. Because as you're turning to Hebrews six, Jesus has just said, uh, if, if the, the fruit's good, the tree's good. If the fruit's bad, the tree's bad. And, and out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we're going to take a look again at Hebrews 6, starting in verse 7. The Hebrew writer had told us, is where we ended up last week, for, uh, he said, For the land that drink, has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he says, when the rain falls on the land, some of the land will produce a crop and God blesses it. Other parts of the land that receive the same rain will produce thorns and thistles and that's just going to be burned. And in essence, what the Hebrew writer is saying is, is how the land responds to the rain shows whether or not it's good seed or bad seed. You understand what I'm saying? Or good, good crop or bad crop or actually good soil or bad soil. And so in the same way, Jesus, as we remember in our study last week, was dealing with how when the Holy Spirit draws us, if you respond in faith, you're going to be saved. If you reject the Holy Spirit, the, Holy, the, the rain that falls on you, if you will, if you reject it, you're, you're doomed for hell because that's the only sin not already covered by Jesus' death on the cross and so now he says how we respond shows which way we have responded to the Holy Spirit's drawing us and how we, listen closely, how we speak shows whether his work has made it into our hearts or not. Go back again now to Matthew chapter uh, 12. And as you're turning there, remember how the Hebrew writer talks about how some land responds this way, some land responds the other way, and it's the same rain. And, but he says, but we, we, we think better of you because th we believe that there's going to be things that accompany salvation. There's a difference between those of us who know him and those of us who don't. So again, in, back, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. 
for the tree is known by its fruit. He's, he's talking to the Pharisees here. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And then he talks about how we're going to be given an account for every idle word. We'll come back to that passage a little bit later uh, tonight. So land that drinks in the rain either produces a crop or weeds. How we respond to the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts will show whether or not we have responded appropriately or not. But how are we going to know how people have responded in their hearts to the Holy Spirit's work, according to what Jesus is saying here? Well, no, by what? By their fruit. But how are we going to be able to measure the fruit? How they talk. That's what we're going to go into a little bit tonight. And I want to kind of get you ready for where we're going to go. We're going to be dealing with passages of Scripture tonight that deal with how our mouths reveal our hearts. Now, there are going to be passages that Satan's going to want to use to try to scare you. Remember, there's a group of people that don't know the Lord and their hearts are going to be revealed in that way through what comes out of their mouth. But at the same time, there's also another group of people, hopefully many of us here, if not all of us here in this room, who actually know the Lord, who have been sealed by the Spirit. We've responded to the Holy Spirit's call in our lives. We have put our faith in Jesus Christ. He sealed us with His Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Yet at the same time, is God done with us now that we're saved? No, he's still, we're in that sanctification process. And I'm going to show you passages where there are passages written to Christians about what comes out of our mouths as well, showing where our hearts are. Is God saying that we're not saved when he's talking to Christians about what comes out of our mouths? No. And we look when he's talking to Christians, he's still trying to reveal where we are in our hearts in this process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Again, there's a group of people that he's talking to here in Matthew and, he's, and, and I'll show you some more about how that's proven, who are lost, and he wants them to know where their heart condition is for salvation. But there's also going to be passages that talk to us who are Christians, and God's still trying to reveal to us our hearts. Even though we've been made new, we're still in the process of con being conformed in the image of Jesus Christ, and hopefully you're willing to acknowledge tonight that you're not there yet. If you sit here tonight and say, oh, I'm good, I'm secure, and uh, I'm, I'm perfect already, the Bible says the truth's not in you. It does in 1 John chapter 1. If anybody walks in the darkness and says they walk only in the light, they lie and the truth is not in them. And the Bible actually says if you're not willing to confess your sin, if you say you have no sin, 1 John chapter 1 verse 10, you lie and the truth is not in you. So even though I've been born again, even though I've been made free from sin, I still choose on a daily basis, even though I'm secure in my salvation, I still choose on a daily basis who's going to be in control. And that evidence will be seen by not only my actions, but also especially by what comes out of my mouth. We're going to talk about that tonight. Go to Luke chapter 6. Look at verses 43 through 44. Luke 6 verse 43. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Years ago when I was pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic, which is many years ago, I preached a series through the book of James, and we're about to jump into some passages in the book of James. I did a whole series through the whole book of James. The series was entitled, What's in Your Bucket? 
And I illustrated the whole sermon series by having a five-gallon paint bucket, and I held it up, and I asked everybody, what's in the bucket? And of course, they don't know. And I then dealt with, well, how are we going to know what's in the bucket? Well, there's a couple of ways you can know what's in the bucket. One is you could get above it and look down and see what's in the bucket, or you could hit it and hit it hard enough that what's in it will splash out, and what's in it's going to splash out when we get hit. Or it could just keep overflowing to the point that it just spills out. And we dealt with the fact that God is continually trying to reveal to us and to the world what's in our bucket. And doesn't the Bible also say that sometimes God will put Christians through trials to show what's in our bucket? He'll sometimes allow us to get hit to show that this treasure is in jars of clay. That this power, when the, the reality of Christ is allowed to splash out of us and, and he does his work in our heart and people say, could you give me reason for the hope that lies within you? When, when those times that we respond in the way in which obviously the spirit actually produces peace and joy in the midst of the struggle. First Peter chapter 1 verse 6 says that these trials have come that your faith may be proved genuine. Sometimes God will put us through stuff to just knock us and show what's in our bucket. Oh, but at the same time, sometimes he'll allow you to go through stuff to show you what's in your bucket that he wants to still work on. And the question is, when you go through those times and God reveals you what's in your bucket and he shows you what's really in your heart, again, you got to understand, is he talking to the lost person or is he talking to the saved person? You see, if he's talking to the lost person about what their heart is, what's he trying to get accomplished? Salvation. Salvation. But now, once you move from that category to this category of being a child of his, we don't need to worry about judgment or wrath. He loves us, but he's still going to work on us. And when he reveals as a Christian where you are in your heart, what's his purpose? I heard it, sanctification. His purpose is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ more and more. But what happens is, in those moments that Christians go through those times where God reveals us our heart, Satan comes in and goes, maybe you're not saved. See, that's why it's so important for us to put on the helmet of salvation. Allow the Spirit of God to confirm with our spirits that we're His children, as it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, that He does. That's why the Bible says we're to get that part settled. Do you ever notice in the armor of God, in Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about the helmet of salvation? Because you've got to put on the helmet of salvation, because if you're not set in the fact that you're His, Satan will attack you there over and over. And you've got to get that baby settled. And you get that settled in your heart and in your spirit. Now, we believe the word, and I'm his child, and he loves me. And everything that comes to God from me now is love. But he's going to still keep revealing to me my heart. Go to James chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 12. James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large, they're driven among, by strong winds, and they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of that pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member or a part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. How a great forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, our body parts, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, 
and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So here he's talking to those who want to be teachers. He said, be careful, because those of us who teach are going to be held in stricter accountability. Why? Because as we saw earlier tonight, and we're going to come back to it, Jesus said that we're going to be held accountable for every idle word. And here he talks about how those of us who are going to teach are going to be held in stricter accountability. And then he talks about the fact that no human being can tame their tongue. Has anybody here never said anything they weren't supposed to say? Has anybody here never said something and go, oops, probably shouldn't have said that? Of course not. If you did, you already just broke that by lying to us right now if you said that. And actually, the problem isn't your tongue. You could say, well, I'll never speak again, and that'll keep me from getting into trouble. No, the tongue just reveals your heart. If your heart's already bad, you got a problem. That's why in Jeremiah 17, 9, the Bible says the heart is deceitful beyond cure. The only way we get a new, uh, our heart cured is to get a new heart that Christ gives us. But as Christians, even though we've been made new, there's still that old flesh problem that's in us that he's still working on. And you're going to see it tonight as we look at some of these passages, how it's bigger than you think. Go to James chapter 3, look at verses 13 through 18. He says, who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there's jealousy and selfish ambition, wherever these exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he says, don't pretend that you're more spiritual than you are. Do you realize someone could talk really good with their mouth and with their tongue and fool a lot of people? But actually, that's still revealing the heart. That's still revealing the heart. If someone is really not living the way they ought, if someone's living a double life, but they want people to think that they're living a righteous life and they talk real good, what is their tongue really showing? Conceit. Deceit. Yeah, both. You, wanna, you, you want people to think of yourself more highly than, than you really ought. And we want to deceive people into thinking well, that we're not. Even though you say, I didn't say anything bad, actually, your tongue revealed your heart. And that's what the Holy Spirit is going to be working on us, folks. This goes pretty deep. But the good news is, again, if you're lost, you, you better let the Lord show you that you're lost. And don't, it's not a, maybe I'm not saved. Listen closely. The Holy Spirit doesn't ever say, maybe you're not saved. The Holy Spirit will make it very, very clear to you. There's a big difference between wondering if you're saved and knowing you're lost. 
If you're sitting there saying, well, maybe I'm not, Spirit's not talking to you. If Spirit's talking to you, you'll know you're lost, okay? But now for those of us who are believers, he still wants to get to the root of the, of the issue. I'm not going to ask for answer out loud on this one. But when your life gets hit sometimes, and we get hit almost daily, what's the first thing that splashes out of your bucket? Is it the good or is it the righteous? I'm oh, sorry, the good or the unrighteous. And you say, well, how will I know? Go to Galatians chapter 5. By the way, as you're turning to Galatians chapter 5, I can't help read from James 3 without telling the story. Years ago, I was a young preacher boy in seminary, and I would travel all over the southeast of the United States to preach. And one time I preached at this little church in Louisiana, and uh, it was just a real kind of small, cozy little church. And a lady came forward during the service one Sunday and gave a children's sermon. She sat on the steps there at the pulpit area, and she had the kids come around her, and she had a little horse's bit. And she also had a model of a ship. And she told these children, she said, you see this little bit? You can turn around a horse, a whole big animal. You can just turn it around with this little piece of metal. And you see this big ship? He says, she says, you see that little rudder at the bottom? That little rudder will turn that whole ship around, and you can have a forest fire started by just one little spark. And she said, and our tongues are real small things, but they do a lot of damage, and they have a lot more power than you think. When the sermon was over and the service was over, I couldn't wait to run up to that lady. I said to her, I've never heard anything like that before. Where did you get that, all, those awesome illustrations about the rudder and the bit and the fire? And she looked at me and she said, um, Preacher, it's in the book of James, chapter 3. <laughs> <laughs> my tongue revealed that I hadn't read my Bible as much as I thought I told everybody I had. Go to Galatians chapter 5, look at verses 16 through 26. You want to know how to know whether or not your heart is responding appropriately in its first response or whether or not it's needing some work in the Holy Spirit? Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But... If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. There's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Stick with me. We're coming back to that. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the evidence of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against, against such things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so he says, if you live by the Spirit, if you're born again, let us also keep in step with the Spirit let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So for believers, we who have been made right with God, who are alive by the Spirit, we've passed from death to life, we've been sealed by the Spirit, we're still in the process of being sanctified, and in that process, God's really not wanting to work on our actions. He's not. He's wanting to get to our hearts. Because if He can get to your heart, 
and, allow, and you allow him to make the change in your heart, then your actions will automatically follow. You see, a, a good tree can't produce bad fruit. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. You gotta go to the root. We've all, you ever heard the, the old saying, stop trying to get rid of the cobwebs and, and kill the spider? It's the same kind of an idea. We spend all our time trying to fix the action. That's not the problem. The action's just manifesting what's really going on in our hearts. Now, as we go down this road, let me just say this to you quickly. Um, who's the only one that really knows people's hearts? God. So be careful of you trying to become the Holy Spirit. And well, I, she only said that because she really wants. Be careful. You don't know their motives. You don't know their hearts. That's the Lord's job. You just let him speak to you about where you are in your heart. And you don't go around judging everybody else's hearts. Now, the question is this. If people watch your life over a long period of time, what will they see? Will they see the flesh or will they see the spirit? Will they see a good tree or a bad tree? The issue is not perfection. Because as we just read here, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you go, I've done a few of those things and actually maybe a lot of those things. Remember, there's a difference between is he talking to this group here that has not been saved yet or is he talking to the group that has been saved? Go over real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As you turn there, remember the Hebrew writer said, land that drinks in the rain, some produces good crops, some produce thorns and thistles. But we think better of you, things that accompany salvation. There's a difference between those who are saved and those who aren't. In 1 Corinthians 6, listen to verses 9 through 11. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You may have done these things in your lifetime, but guess what? Once you've been washed... There's a difference now. Now you say, Jim, what if I've done a couple of those things after salvation? Well, then you're struggling with the same thing that Paul struggled with in Romans chapter 7. Remember in Romans 7, Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. You know what I'm talking about? Now, for years, theologians have wrestled with, was Paul talking about his experience before salvation or after salvation? And you'll talk to people on both sides. I have wrestled and I've over the years of my study in the scriptures, I've been back and forth, but I'm settled now on the fact I believe, and I can show you tonight scripturally why, I believe that Paul was talking about his experience after salvation. And here's why. Twice in that passage, he says, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. Listen closely. It's no longer I who do it, but sin. He said that twice. When he says it's no longer, he's showing us that a transition has occurred. This is his experience after salvation. And I'm glad because I know I'm saved. I know the Spirit's within me. He's confirmed it many, many times in many, many ways. But I still struggle. And there are things I do that I don't want to do. And the things I want to do, sometimes I don't. But Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? And how does he finish it? But what? Thank he said, worship man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? How does he finish it? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. As we deal with God revealing our hearts 
And those who live like that, if that's, your, if that's what people watch your life for a long period of time, chances are you're not saved and you're not getting into the kingdom of God. But over a long period of time, and that's the importance of what we're talking about tonight, over a long period of time, I'm not talking perfection, but as a whole, are you making progress? Is the Spirit of God who began His good work in you being allowed to finish it? If He began it, He said He'll finish it. Are you growing in your walk? Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to 2 Peter. Tuesday night didn't get this. So you guys are getting a little extra tonight. So go to 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, which you already have, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and what? Are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they'll be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The question is not, have you ever done these things after salvation? The question is, are you allowing the Spirit of God to make the change? Are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? If people to watch you over the years, would they say, he or she, I see more of Jesus in them every single year. That's what we want to hear. That's one of the neat things I have in my traveling ministry, now having, having been a pastor as well, but also as I've traveled this country for years and I develop relationships with Christians all around the country. And now for the last 15 years that I've done this, I go back and I can honestly look at people and say, I see Jesus growing you. And the good news is they say, well, we see people, Jesus growing you. And I'm like, God, I hope you do. And that's the neat thing about building relationships with other Christians is you can encourage each other. And there are days when we let the flesh win and not the spirit. And we didn't beat each other up. We would just kind of encourage each other to let Jesus have that area of your life. But at the same time, over a period of time, are people seeing more and more of Jesus? Is the tree becoming obviously a good, is, I mean, you already are a good tree, but is it being more evident to people now that Christ has done this work in your heart? If you try to go and fix it yourself, you totally don't get it. By the way, you want further proof that um, God's not expecting and demanding perfection after we're saved? Um, Jesus said, who do you say that I am, guys? And they all listed. And then he said, but what about you? He said, who do men say that I am? And they listed. And they said, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood didn't open your eyes. My father's opened your eyes. The spirit of God has opened your eyes to who I am, and you've responded. Listen to what he says. And he said, and you're Peter now. You're that new creation. But not many hours, not many days later, what does Peter say when they say, who's Jesus? Never met him. Aren't you with him? They never met the guy. 
I mean, he looked like he made a major, maybe he's not saved after all. Oh, no, no. What God begins, folks, is sealed. And if you, we don't have time to go there, but if you were to go back to John 21, and you look at Jesus' encounter with Peter after his resurrection, and he says to Peter, he says, do you really love me more than these? And Peter says, I do, I do love you. And all Jesus says is, let's get going from here. Let's get going from here. I, I, I allowed you to go through that for a couple of reasons. One is to show you that your faith is real because you didn't leave. Even though you denied me, you didn't leave. You stuck around. On top of that, um, I know you love me already. And let's get going from here. And also, it's still letting me show you, Peter, there's still some more stuff I got to do in your life. By the way, you want to have a fun study? Just follow Peter. Just pull out your concordance and look up Peter and just follow Peter. And you'll find Peter preaching at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit preaching through him. And he's preaching. And as he's preaching, God's speaking through him and the other disciples. And all these Jews are hearing him in Gentile languages. Yet he won't go into a Gentile's house. Lord, I've never eaten anything that's unclean and I'm not going to go into a Gentile's house. And God, through the sheet incident, tells him to go to Cornelius' house. And what does he do? When he goes into Cornelius' house and Cornelius and his family, the Gentiles, get saved, he says, now I know that God shows no favoritism but saves everybody from all nations. But not long after that, he who had been eating with the Gentiles, Peter, there are some religious crusties from the Jerusalem church that had come down and he acted like he never ate with him, and Paul had to confront him to his face. Peter was a piece of work, wasn't he? But just like us. But the question is, is the tree good? Because if the tree's good, there's going to be more and more evidence of him having begun his work. Go to James chapter 1. Look at verses 22 through 27. James 1, verse 22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres... This over a long period of time, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, there it is again, but he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Folks, the, the question is not, have you kept your heart perfect? But over a period of time, has there been a transformation in your heart? Not just to be saved, but now has he been allowed to, I'll get right to you, Mark. Has he been allowed to work on you now for his purposes to conform you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ? If that's happening, you're his. If you're still the same person that you were back when you, quote unquote, said you were saved, chances are it never began. Go ahead, Mark. Bit of embarrassment, but uh, I'm in the Bible in the bucket where the dog keeps returning to his vomit, and mm -hmm. uh, this isn't good. Mm -hmm. But I have the Holy Spirit, and I have, I'm very separated from people. I, I run a business, I do it all by myself, I'm not around folks. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying it's 
I love the Lord and he loves me and I see it night and day, but I keep returning back to the mm-hmm. bucket of vomit. Yep. Welcome to, welcome to all of us. You're not, the only, you're not the only one that struggles with that. But, here, but, here's, but here's what I want you to hear, though. And you, I'm glad you brought this up. Go to James chapter 4. Let's, let's, just, let's just go to James chapter 4. And I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to ask you, who is James talking to? The lost crowd or the saved crowd? Okay. In James chapter 4, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Sound familiar, Mark? You desire and you don't have. You murder, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you, don't, and you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly, your motive's wrong, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Before I go any further, is he writing to Christians or non-Christians? He's obviously writing to Christians. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. But here he said that believers who do fall back into wanting to play with the world and things of the world in the flesh, we're, we're committing adultery. We're cheating on, our, on our, our Lord who saved us and bought us and we're his bride. And he's caused his spirit to dwell within us. And he's jealous for the fact that those things attract us more than him. Oh, but keep reading. But God gives more grace. Now, before I go any further, you've got to let this sink in. You know, Romans chapter 5 says that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemy, he sent his son to die for us. Correct? All right, and then he goes on and he says, if he will go and send his son and offer us that grace and mercy while we are his enemy, how much more now that we've been reconciled will we be spared from his wrath, okay? So when we, as his children, act in ways that are causing him grief and sadness, is he angry at us or does he love us? He loves us. But you struggle with the fact that you feel like he doesn't love you as much and you beat yourself up. See, you're listening to the wrong guy. He gives more grace. He offered you grace when you were lost and when you didn't know him. And he offered you grace and mercy. How much more grace do you think is now available to you? But listen to what he says next. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud. By the way, the proud are those who say, Lord, I'm really sorry. I'll fix this. When you say, I'll fix this, I'll do better. I won't do that again. You're proud. Because you think you can do it. Under my own power, I can't, you can't. But if you say that, you're being proud. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will what? He'll exalt you. What we need to do in those times is not put our eyes on ourselves and say, I'm such a horrible person, blah, blah, blah. You say, Lord, this is who I am apart from you and apart from your spirit being in control. I need your help. That's awesome. But then we need to believe that he'll do it. That's why in this passage he talks about, you know, in James chapter 1, if you lack anything, ask God. 
But don't doubt when you ask. If he's promised that he will exalt you and he will give you the grace and he will give you the strength, he'll give you the victory over that mortal flesh. If you, if you believe that God said it, you've got to believe he'll do it. And, but you have to humble yourself, on, listen, on a daily basis. Isn't that why the Bible says we're to lay our flesh on the altar? So God's always trying to reveal to us our heart, but he's not doing it because he wants to beat us up. He's doing it because he loves us. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 12 and look at verse 36. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Now, before I ask you this question, I have to take you to Psalm 32. Put a bookmark here and go to Psalm 32 and look at verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, real quick about the no deceit. He's simply saying that you're not lying about where your spiritual condition is. If you think you're righteous and say you're righteous when you know you're not, um, that's deceit. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered, whom God counts as not as sin against him. If we are his children, are we going to be judged for our sins in the sense of whether or not we get into heaven? No. Our sins have been covered, right? But Jesus says here in Matthew 12, verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Why on the day of judgment, here's your question, will people have to give an account for every careless word they speak? And along with that question, is he talking to the unbelievers or the believers? How many think it's unbelievers, first of all? Okay, hands down. How many think it's believers? All right. The answer is, he's predominantly talking to unbelievers. But I'm going to show you in just a little bit that believers will still be held accountable, but in a different way. We still experience a judgment. Believers still experience a judgment. It's not a judgment whether or not we go into heaven or not. But he's mainly talking to unbelievers here. But I will show you in a little bit how believers will be held accountable too. But our words show our hearts, right? And if we never receive Jesus' covering for our sins, I don't know if you know this or not, you're going to have to pay for every single one of your sins. The lost people. They're going to have to pay for every single one. Go to Revelation 20. I'll show you what I mean. Go to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. This judgment here in Revelation 20 is the judgment of all the wicked, all the lost, at the end of the millennial kingdom. There's been the tribulation period. There's been the thousand years of Jesus' reign. And now he's judging all the wicked. This is the second death. This is what the Bible says in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and he messes to the churches that will be spared to second death. This is not a judgment for Christians. We will experience a judgment, a judgment seat of Christ, which I'll touch on in just a second. But in Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Before you go any further, if God is sitting on his throne at this time, 
and all of creation is trying to get away from him. What kind of a mood's he in? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? This is a time of wrath. This is a time of judgment. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, plural, were opened. Then another book was also opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And according to Jesus, that also counts for every little idle word they ever said. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here, it's very, he's showing them, look, your name's not in the book of life because you didn't respond to my offer of salvation through my son. You're now going into the lake of fire, but before you do, you're going to be suffering for eternity according to everything you've ever done. And the reason is this. God says, I've already provided a way to cover all of your sins. I did it myself by sending my own son to live the sinless life, to die in your place, to rise from the dead, and to offer you this free gift of salvation. All the sins were covered. The only sin that wasn't covered is if you reject this offer. Oh, but by the way, if you reject this offer, all those sins that were covered, you've just said, I don't want your payment for my sins. I'll take care of it myself. Here you go. Here they all are, and I've been keeping track. You don't want to be in that group, do you? But for those of us who are in the group of the saved category, can we just say, hey, all my sins are covered. I don't have to worry about idle words. I don't have to worry about careless words. I don't have to worry about coarse jesting and all this stuff because it's already all forever. It's all covered. It's under the blood. No. Oh, no. He's still working on us, is he not? And the Bible actually says that we're going to be held accountable for how much he was allowed to do in and through us in the sanctification process that he's trying to do, what he's wanting to do through us, and the plan that he had for each of our lives after we're saved. And on top of that, if we continue to not allow the Spirit of God to do his work, and which manifests itself in our language as well and in our hearts and our, our, our speech, we're going to miss out on reward. So he still is caring about every idle word for us, but not in the same way that he cares about them for the world. For us, those things are going to make it so we lose reward down the road. And if your heart is like Paul's, your heart will be, I don't want to miss out on anything God has for me. That's why Paul says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal of the high calling of Christ Jesus. I want, he already knew he was saved. I want that full reward. So don't think for a second that God's going to, first off, judge you for every idle word in the sense you're going to go to hell because you said all these things. No, 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 you're in that category. You've already been moved from death to life. He's still working on us, but, and he still cares about idle words, but it's for a different reason. For a different reason. Folks, that's why it's, we should be slow to speak and quick to listen. This will help, our not, help us not speak carelessly. If you actually take the time to lit that thought that was about to come out of your mouth, Run through the filter, it will help you a lot from having to confess as a Christian things you, you know, I shouldn't have snapped at my wife like that. Lord, I'm really sorry. I got to be honest with you. I had an experience last night with, with my wife. I don't want to go too much detail because she might be listening. But, um, but as we were debating something last night, my fleshly reaction was to act in a way in which I had seen my dad sometimes act toward my mom. And I don't know if you all know it or not, but you kind of. You know how the people say to their kids, I hope you have a kid just like you. You ever had that? Well, save your breath, parents, because you're going to. Because 
the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I sensed in my flesh wanting to react in that way. And the Spirit of God, thank you, he spoke to me and stopped me. And I didn't. And it saved me a whooping. I mean, it saved me a whooping. But at the same time, if we learn how to listen, the Spirit will then take control. He'll show where our heart is. And oh, by the way, not only did I not do it, later on in the evening, I then also admitted to my wife, when you said this, I almost did that. But God spoke to me, and I even told her, I don't want to be that person that would ever respond to you in that way. I'm so glad he showed me. I even admitted what was in my heart. And in the same way, this is a great way for you to find out whether or not you even got the Spirit. Because let me ask you a question, according to what we've looked at already tonight. If you're not saved, can you just stop and think whatever comes through your head and decide whether or not it's going to be the right thing to say? Are you able to produce the evidence of the Spirit? No, you won't be able to. I have dealt with too many Christians, quote unquote, who say, I know what the Bible says, but sometimes you just got to. You'd be amazed how many people out there say that. I know the Bible says, but Jim, sometimes you just got to blow off steam. And I just let the Spirit show them where their heart really is and which group they're in. What's in the bucket. Go to Matthew chapter 12 and look at verses 38 through 42. Matthew 12 verses 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus and said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, we're not going to have time to finish in the 15 minutes we have left. We won't have time to finish this section, but I'll hopefully get us as far as uh, we got last night. I'm going to ask you a question again. I want to, try to have you try to answer it. Why do you think it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign from God. Jesus said it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. Go ahead. They want more proof even though that's not going to do much. Oh, I love it. Did you, hear what, did you hear what Glenn just said? Let's just take the first part of what you said. Let's leave the rest of it okay. It's still good. But they want more proof. When you say, I want more proof, God, what are you actually saying about the amount of proof he's already given? It's not enough. Did you catch that? When you say, God, here's a sign I want you to give me, you're actually saying you have not done a good enough job revealing your will and your truth to me. And on top of that, when you tell God what he has to do to prove himself to you, you just put yourself here and him here, have you not? Now, before you jump on the Pharisees and the people of Israel at that time, I want an honest answer here. Show of hands. Who in this room has never said that to God? If you'll only just, yeah, exactly. We all have, haven't we? Oh, guess what? He's showing us our hearts. 
Don't ever think, I would never do that. Oh, folks, we're, we're, we're capable of all of it. I love the fact that the Bible shows men and women of faith, but he still shows their warts. You know? In the same way, Jesus is saying, look, I have given you enough revelation. We dealt with that last week in our study about how God reveals himself through creation, through the Spirit, showing his law in our hearts and all these things, and his word's gone into all the earth. What we say when we say, God, but if you'll just do this, then I'll. We're saying that he's not capable of communicating himself well enough, and he doesn't do a good enough job. It's an evil and adulterous generation that's still seeking more. Go to Luke 16. In Luke 16, look at verses 19 through 31. Luke 16, verse 19, Jesus is speaking. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. By the way, before you go any further, that doesn't mean that they were being nice. Nowadays, when a dog licks you, they go, oh, what a friendly little dog. Back then, there were packs of wild dogs, and them licking his sores was not because they wanted to give him comfort. Actually, a man told me years ago, he said, if a Doberman is licking you, he's not being friendly, he's basting you. <laughs> All right? <laughs> and that's what was going on. These were dogs who were actually hoping he would hurry up and die so that they could eat him the rest of the way. The poor man died. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I'm in anguish in this flame. Isn't that interesting? His heart hadn't changed. He's still telling Abraham what to do and treating Lazarus like he's his servant. Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime uh, you received your good things and Lazarus in the like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you like you'd ever want to may not be able. And none may, cr may cross from there to us before we go any further. Folks, that right there blows apart purgatory. Some of you were raised in a denomination that taught that there's a place called purgatory where people who aren't quite bad enough to go uh, to hell but not good enough to go to heaven would go to a place where they'll be in torment, but you can pray them out of there, and then they go into heaven. You give enough money to the church or light enough candles. Listen closely what the Scripture says. A chasm has been fixed by God between the two places. Not like anybody would want to go from heaven to hell, but uh, they, they, they can't. That's a wonderful thing too, isn't it? And those who have been at the end of their life judged and they're going to go to hell, they cannot pass to heaven. And then Abraham said, uh, I'm sorry, the, the rich man says, then I beg you, fathers, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What did, what did Abraham say? They've got the word of God. The, it, everything they need to know and everything they need to believe, everything they need to be saved is right there in the Word of God. 
Listen to what he says. He said, no, Father Abraham, <laughs> that's not enough. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And isn't that true? But isn't it interesting? God said, there's enough that you have to believe and to be saved in the word of God already. You don't need more. Now, I want to just chase a rabbit real quick. It's interesting how the Bible says don't test God, correct? Don't put God to a test. Yet, the Bible also says in a couple places where God says, test me in this. Doesn't he? Yeah. It says, test me. In Malachi, in the book of Malachi, it says, test me when it comes to tithing and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven. Listen closely. to the, why, why does the Bible say don't test God, but God says test me? Here's the difference. God's allowed to set the test. If God says, test me, you can test him because he set the test. If you determine the test, you're testing God. Do You see the difference? He says, you don't determine the test. Now, isn't God awesome and gracious and merciful, though, to a person like Gideon who would say, all right, just make the fleece wet and the ground dry and I'll be good. And God does it. And he says, Okay, that's all right. Could you do it? You know, you see what I'm, and God was merciful to him. He was very merciful to him because he knows us. We all, we all have thought that. God, if this is what I'm supposed to do, could you make this happen? We've all done it. Lord, heal me and I believe. Heal me I believe. Exactly. God's just revealing to us where our hearts really are. By the way, as you're praying about something, a lot of us will say, Lord, well, if this happens, I'll know it's a yes, and if this happens, I'll know it's a no. You ever done that? But hasn't the Bible already told us how we'll know? It's called peace. The Bible actually says in Colossians 3.15, to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, with, let your supplications be made known to God, and what? The peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. Folks, he's already told us how he'll lead us and how he'll guide us and direct us. And yes, he does sometimes do things that confirm it. And I can show you, and that's another whole study for another time, how God reveals his will and he uses different ways. And he does use other believers to confirm things where a brother or sister will come up and say, I don't know why, but God just told me to say this. And it lines up with right what you've been praying about. And you know God confirmed it in such a wonderful way. But don't you be the one who says, God, you're not able to do it well enough, but I'll tell you how you can be good enough. It's an evil and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. Go to Matthew chapter 4. We'll wrap up with this. Jesus was, Matthew chapter 4 verse 1, Jesus was led up, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you really are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Of course, he said it's written, You shall not live by uh, bread alone by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then he double took him to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're really the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then he takes Psalm 91 out of context where it's written, He'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, Jesus says it's written. Listen closely. Does this sound familiar? What is Satan actually saying to Jesus? You're, 
you're really not doing a good enough job to reveal yourself to everybody. If you turn some stones into bread, that'll change, that'll get their attention. Or if you just throw yourself down from the temple and Jesus, and you're going to see this next week when we come back, we're going to take a look at this sign of Jonah. And I'm going to show you that Jesus has already been revealing signs to them. Has he not? What were the signs we looked at last week that he was doing to reveal that he was from God? He was healing, but he was casting what? Casting out demons, remember? That was the whole study of how this revealed that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here he had been doing signs and casting out demons. And some people had the nerve to come and say, see a real sign. It's not enough. And folks, listen closely. God loves you. He loves me. And I promise you, he wants to talk to every one of us in that same way. Because we still, too, say, I know you say you take care of me, and I know you say you'll provide for me financially. I know you say you'll provide a mate for me. I know you say that you have a plan for my life and everything. I know you have, uh, but has anybody ever said those thoughts? We all have. And he's shown us our hearts. Do you trust me? We know how to say the words, but he knows our hearts. The good news is, if you're in this lost category, he loves you, and he wants you to know your lostness so that you can become saved and begin this journey of getting to know him better. If you're in this saved category, he loves you. And he's showing you your heart because he wants you not only to become more like him, he wants all those rewards that are going to come with it, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Joy, peace, patience, gentleness. And it'll start manifesting itself that he's been allowed to do this work when you get out into the public at Christmas time and don't grumble about the parking situation or the traffic. I love you. See you next week. Thanks for coming.